Hello, welcome to another episode of the Mark Gross Podcast. I was listening recently to an audio, as you'll hear me say a lot, uh, from Francis Weller, who's been on this podcast. He's an incredible teacher and just an incredible person, human, and his insights are just, they're revelatory for me. They make my soul open up a little more and really so in so many ways, I feel the complexity of my humanness is validated, where we often dance in positivity and what people are now calling toxic positivity, which is really a form of bypassing the depth and the quality and the substance that is within all emotion. And as a society, we've done this. We have we've banished the dark. We've avoided pain. We've, and for many reasons, of course, uh, not wanting to get hurt or to experience pain is obviously very biological. But this idea that emotional pain is in some way a sign of our dysfunction rather than evidence of our function, evidence that you're working, evidence that your soul's present, evidence that you're tasting the world. I was listening to him recently share about two questions that he asked a group. And I encourage all of you by his audio series called The Alchemy of Initiation and just get ready <laughs> and then send me a message letting me know what you thought of it. But when your soul gets invited into the house and sits down with a cup of tea with Francis Weller, you'll say, thank you, I'm sure. And the two questions were, the first one was, what is the vow that your soul is waiting for you to make? And the second question what would you have to give up or let go of to fulfill that vow? I was speaking to a friend yesterday about that, the vow that we're waiting for, the decision, you know, I think is so often we're one large, hard, challenging decision away from reclaiming ourselves, our sovereignty, our authenticity, our independence, ourselves, just ourselves, our soul is living in the ether and we feel like we've banished it in a way because it has truths that we don't want to hear and we don't want to hold and it's going to require us to potentially it's going to require us to potentially not belong anymore to a group that requires us not belonging to ourselves which is such an interesting paradox isn't it to have to not be within the home of your own body and your own life in order to feel like you have a home the complexities of being a human, whole solar system within you, outside of you. It's an interesting intersection, isn't it? That biologically we have been shaped and influenced to not trust ourselves, to not live within our authenticity, our voice, in order to be welcomed. And then there, this, there being this moment where we awaken to the fact that we are not at home within ourselves and we have some work to get back there, to rebuild the house, to invite ourselves back in, to change the floors, to put in flooring we want, to put in windows we want, to decorate it the way we want. And at the cost of potentially losing the love and affirmation of those around us. And I often say that you will lose the things 
in your life that you place your worth in to remind you that it doesn't live there. And I've been thinking about that recently. You know, if you were to create a list of all the things that you change in order to get applause, you you know, I was speaking to a friend recently about this of like, they lost a couple thousand Instagram followers and they were like, what is wrong with me? Why don't people want to see my stuff? Blah, 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 blah. All the human responses, you know, I think of the social dilemma when it's like humans were not designed to hold the opinions of 10,000 people. That documentary, by the way, everyone should watch the social dilemma. And it's so true. But what was really interesting about the conversation with her is that what a great experience of pain to explore because in it lives the fact that in some way your validation and your worth was in your Instagram following, that was in the likes, that was in the booty pictures, that's in the matches you have on a dating app, whether you're in a relationship, whether someone chooses you, whether someone texts you back in a certain amount of time, whether et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all have our stuff. What's so beautiful and transformative about the opportunity that exists within that knowledge is knowing that you now have the chance to reclaim what you gave away, which is whenever I see that how I feel about me depends on one of those things, I recognize that I gave away the power for that, that I've got to go gather it back and take it. What did I give my Instagram followers in that case that belongs to me? And that's how wholeness is given away. Because we put the worthiness of ourselves, our wholeness, we give away chunks of it, and then we spend our lives chasing those chunks. That the only way I get the piece of me back from you is by you saying that I'm enough. Oh my God, no, let me go take that piece back so it doesn't matter what you say, I'm already enough. Do you see that? You sort of follow the breadcrumbs of the pain to reclaim the things that you were taught to give away. And that is a powerful moment of recognition that it's not your fault that they're given away because we're taught that. And that's how we inherit pain. That's how we inherit patterns. How would you know the way out of anything that you've never watched anyone else navigate? And this is the birth of our work, you know? You become the teacher other people need. Just like we see so many people who provide healing for themselves because traditional models couldn't provide them. And so then they go teach that modality. And of course, the systems that exist try to invalidate the modality because it threatens the systems that keep everything held up. Including the fact that maybe the car you drive makes you more powerful. Maybe the whatever, blah, blah, blah. Again, go pick up the piece that says... It's how you look, it's what you drive, it's your bank account, it's this, it's that, it's your body, it's go pick up all the pieces you gave away that said that's where it lives because it doesn't. It lives in you. It lives in your choices and your ability to stand up for yourself and your self-worth. Your self-worth is in your hands, not in someone else's. And when we recognize that, we're free. And so today's conversation, I bring all of that up. Because, goddamn, it's all important. And it was, those questions reminded me of some big decisions I faced uh, and have faced throughout my life, but a really big decision to stop drinking. And it was really just this feeling within me that was nudging me, saying, but you don't have a problem, was my excuse, you know? But you don't, 
you're not an alcoholic. It's like, yeah, but my soul was like, get sober. We need you sober. We're going to find things in there. Get sober. What's below what you numb. So if you've even had the sort of nudge or the curiosity of like, ooh, maybe I should stop drinking for a bit, right? Just like that simple of one, which I think all of us who have been drinkers have had at some point, you know, maybe I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think it's a common feeling and thought based on my experience with uh, people conversing about it. And what I love about Laura McCown, who's the guest today, is she speaks to that, something just that simple. What is it that we can find within ourselves when we experience the surprising magic of a sober life, which is the subtitle to her book, We Are the Luckiest. And I'm so excited for you to experience the beauty of this conversation of, of her, of her truth, of her authenticity, of just her light. I wanted to take a quick break in this episode to talk to you about the greatest struggle that people have in dating, and that is asking the right questions. And not just the right questions, but asking hard questions, questions that determine if someone wants what you want, what you are, what your relationship status is, that that deepen vulnerability and intimacy. And ultimately, asking the right questions allows you to get to know someone on a deeper level gets to know their values, get to know whether they're a good fit for you. Now, I recognize that when I get feedback on asking questions, people say that's too hard to ask or it's too soon to ask that or whatever the excuse or thought or feeling or fear might be. And so I thought, shit, let me ask the hard questions. And that's why I created Create the Love Cards. Create the Love Cards is created with such intention for you to deepen your conversations on dating. And because of that, The deck, when you open it up, it fits two smartphones. So you can put your phone inside the box as you take the cards out so you can both be present. Now, if someone doesn't want to play, I'm like, swipe left. That's a red flag. Like, who doesn't want to play a game? Second, I've got it in four sections. So we've got foreplay, diving deeper, too much information, because would it be a deck from me if it didn't have TMI, and building chemistry. So there's four sections for you to explore the landscapes of one another and see if you're a good fit. If you want to have deeper conversations, if you want to take this deck of cards on your dates or on your date night, or you think this would be a good gift for a couple, then go to createthelove.com slash cards. I put them at a really accessible price of 30 bucks and I can't wait for you to check them out. They've received rave reviews. People are loving them. I have actually one friend who took them out on its second date with someone that she was hitting it off with. And after she got the answers to the questions that the deck provided, she realized that this person was not a good fit and swiped left and now is in a relationship with someone she loves. So that's what dating is about, is it's about filtering. And also my intention is to support you along that journey to not just finding the person that you want, but if you're with them, asking the questions that help create and deepen intimacy. So go to createthelove.com slash cards and grab a set now. So without further ado, here is Laura McCown. Welcome. Hello. I'm so excited to have you here. I've been following your work and your writing. I think we've had a, you know, um, we've had an online relationship, which that sounds weird, a very uh, well-boundaried right. and, and healthy well online. Yes. Yeah, and healthy online relationship uh, where I've had the pleasure of observing your work and your words and just your mission in the world. And I'm just so happy to have you here. Thank you. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. This is exciting to to chat after so so many years. Right, and your book, We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life. This has been really topical for me. I am, you know, I stopped drinking. It'll be almost two years in Mm -hmm. February. In February, it'll be two years. I just had this intuitive, you know, I I wouldn't have identified as an alcoholic or Mm -hmm. um, because the definition is very sort of like, oh, you're drinking your life away, so to speak. You're hitting rock bottoms, you know, but I certainly had rock bottoms, you know, like moments, shame, personal uh, bottoms. Yeah. I time traveled, a, you know, a fair amount, especially in for people wondering what that is. Black. I haven't out. heard that. I haven't heard that. That's <laughs> what I used to call it when we were trying to be funny. Right. Right. Shame of <laughs> blacking out. Well, even shame. I remember we used to, you know, in college, which has very much that sort of binge drinking culture. Yeah. Uh, you know, if someone had a one night stand due to their drinking, we would say that they would need some shampoo to wash it off. Oh, God. You're right. Never heard that. Yeah. But you think about it, you know, I, when I, I had the intuitive feeling to quit for a while. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's always another event. There's always yeah. a, another wedding, another whatever. Mm-hmm. And, I just got to this place where I remember listening to this person in a book say that your body can only alchemize the lowest level of truth that you hold. Mm. And there was something about that line that like rocked me in a way. Like it said, like you can't keep pretending that you don't know what the path is. That's right. And so I'm curious, like I was really fascinated by your work because you spoke to it in a different way that it, you know, there was almost like I saw, uh, I don't want to say shame-free, but in a way that, like I saw my experience as being one where I was escaping myself. Yeah. And so in observing your work, I feel like you put very sort of uh, common words or like the ability to normalize what- Not drinking and, well, and and addiction. I mean, addiction is not, well, a couple things. It's interesting. I love that quote that you, that thing that you grabbed onto about only being able to alchemize your, the lowest level of truth. Yeah. And yeah. he said, what, what truths do you live by that you know are there, but you don't, what truths do you know that you don't live by? Yeah. And that's yeah, where yeah. I was like, oh, I need okay. alcohol to connect. That was it. Yeah. It, it, the Of all the damaging things that I did to myself, drinking and others. And there, I mean, I was, could be considered a very low bottom <laughs> drinking person. When I was still very much drinking, I mean, maybe 10 years before I stopped, I heard Wayne Dyer in one of his shows or lectures, or I don't know, I used to listen to him all the time, uh, say that when he was, he had, Abraham Maslow was actually one of his big teachers, and which is awesome. And he said to him, look, I, I know, you know, you have a few beers every night. For him, it was never a problem. It would never be deemed problematic necessarily by, you know, a quiz or something. Didn't have any sort of outward repercussions, but it was a couple of beers every night. He was running 10 miles a day, all the things, multiple books, you know, very successful, but he was having those beers. And he said, look, if you want to get to the level to which I know you want to get the levels of consciousness, I know you want to reach and the levels of success. I know you want to reach alcohol has no place in your life. You'll just, you'll never get there. I remember hearing that and going, oh my God, because that, like, I just knew that that was true. Right. Mm. And that's the part that 
you're never going to see. That's like the top 20% of our potential, but that 20% is the difference between that's like, I mean, that's like having great relationships. That's what's possible for you. You know, that's mm. the, the, the living like versus just sort of existing and maybe even existing fine, maybe even right. good. You know, that's the stuff we never see and people don't know until they stop drinking. And it's like, oh, there's this whole other layer that I would have never known about. Yeah, I felt that, you know, I've, I never heard that about Abraham Maslow saying to him, mm-hmm. um, but I had heard similar sort of concept of like the gateway to sort of everything you actually need in yeah. order to exist or do your work in the world yeah. is in there. And yeah. and so are you in some sense. And I, yeah. I think what's so interesting about, because I know that people can have healthy relationships with alcohol. That's certainly true. Yeah. But what's fascinating is that every time you anesthetize anything, you're anesthetizing something that has you, that gives you access to wisdom, that gives you access to healing, that gives you like, there's something in the thing that you're anesthetizing that you don't want to hang out with. And then you go in there, you find your silence, you find, I mean, you find the voice that wants to speak that needs a beer to shut the fuck up. That's right. And it's, uh, it's really elusive and, and sneaky because it's like eating a meal and say the, the best nutrients, like the ones you need the most are in that last 10%. And when you have that drink, mm. you never digest that last 10%. Right. And that last 10%, because it's that last 10%, maybe not so fun to digest. It's like that might be your trauma and your, I don't know, all these, this wisdom that's not known to you. And unless you're quiet and you sit in that maybe discomfort of what it's like to not drink when you would have. And these, the situations can seem sort of because it's so socially acceptable and almost expected certainly in situations like dating or work, work, it was so tied into work for me. Same for me. That you think this is the, I remember thinking I can't do what I need to do and what I want to do and what is going to make this great if I don't drink. Like I had it totally reversed, right? And you'll get all kinds of affirmation for that. So it's really sneaky that way. And, and, and that's what makes it different than say any other drug or smoking or something, because that you're not getting the social buy-in for. So mm. in our minds, we, we really have this myth about alcohol that is, is tough to demystify. <laughs> well, I think it's like any truth that has been taught to you. That, there's an energetic to a truth that's not real, but is held as a, a shared truth, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think about like the experience and, and this isn't, a, if you're listening and you're like, I don't have a problem drinking. Are you saying I need, you don't have to do anything. None of this is from judgment. No, it's just our experience. And yeah, you know, I, I think when I, when you recognize like I, COVID has been a really good sign of this, which is mm-hmm. alcohol is considered an essential service. Yeah. But mom and pop bakery, not. But, you know, mom and pop restaurant, not. Family owned businesses, no. Alcohol, guns, you know, whatever it is. Again, I don't care if you want a gun. This isn't judgmental. But it's to say, like, where the fuck is alcohol essential in that? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, oh, totally. And and I mean, we can go into why that that's the case, but absolutely. The COVID's been COVID's been really interesting um, in sort of bringing forth the animal that we have created. It's like we've created this Frankenstein, you know, and and now we're we're having to live with it societally. Mm-hmm. So and it's showing up with alcohol. I mean, the the rates of not even alcoholism, but just you know, women are drinking so much more than they ever have. And the subset of mothers too. There's this article that I, that just came out in Elle magazine about that, that you can link up if you want. It's just astounding. So, but that, like the, the, the point you're making about, cause I don't, you know, I, again, like if people are listening to this, they're like, I don't have a problem with alcohol. I have zero judgment about people drinking none. I just, when I went to get sober, it was like, Yes, Laura has a problem. That's true. By any standard, I have I would fall into the alcoholic category on the in the 12 step quiz, but I didn't care about that. Like I knew I had a problem, but I also like I had this sort of rage in me cuz I it was like this isn't just a Laura has a problem and now she needs to go into the room and mm, deal with it, yeah. right? I was like the water we're swimming in is so polluted this the, we it's like this foregone conclusion in our society because I looked around me all my friends and all my family and all my colleagues drink a lot mm-hmm. and it's like unless you somehow cross this elusive line into the problem you're fine not only are you fine but it's celebrated over drinking all of that and if you have if you cross the line into problem you need to go over there and deal with it by yourself and don't ruin the party for everybody else and be quiet by the way. And like, yeah, you know, just shut up and go to the dark rooms where nobody, where you're anonymous and all that. So I, I definitely had those moments where you said something about the truth or like these truths that we carry or these sort of tropes that we carry around, have a weird energy about them. That was it for me. It was like, wait, we're all, this is, there's, we're all in on it. This is a much bigger problem, right? Yeah, which yeah. that that you know, I I think we we could think of all the reasons that a culture needs to anesthetize itself to its mm-hmm. materialism, to its exploitation of the planet that mm-hmm. that you can't really operate fully, be fully bought in to the the sort of arrogance that humanity lives by, unless you are anesthetizing to it, and when you stop, you pay attention to the fact that. We are literally just stripping the earth of everything it has, which is us, which I think. And so, yeah, I need more than one drink to mm-hmm. to actually even know that that to get rid of that feeling. And I, I was thinking, you know, the more I'm paying attention, the more sort of sober to the things that pull me away mm-hmm. from myself, the more you recognize that you can't be paying attention and not be suffering in some way. Yes, yes. That's such a great way to say it, you know, and it's interesting to like, for example, my, my boyfriend, when we started dating, um, seven months ago, he had always been a drinker, occasional, you know, recreational drug user, big concert goer. He's 50. He's like, it was never problematic necessarily, but he said he had this sort of like feeling like we still doing this, you know, at, Mm -hmm. And 
and also very successful. And like, no one has never had any sort of outside issues because of it. But he read my book and he was like, huh, all right, I like this girl. And I, I'm going to see what it's like to, to not drink for the first time in my adult life. Right. Wow. That's, hey, that's love. <laughs> yeah, it was good. <laughs> and he didn't really tell me when he started. He told me about two weeks into it. It's like, I just want to tell you thank you because I, I read your book and I was like, I'm going to try this out. And the reason I bring this up is because he's not someone that would, you know, no one would have said you need to get sober. No one would have said anything, right? And he wouldn't have even, he yet he had this sort of scratching at himself, like maybe you did. That's what I and hear. Yeah, that was just like, uh, maybe. So he stopped. He still, he still hasn't touched a thing. And he's like the thing, oops. Because we talk about it a lot. I'm very curious about his experience as someone who wasn't like me, right? He's like, I just, it's first of all, the first thing he said, it's like, it's like I have a fucking superpower. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> I just, there's this whole layer of energy that I didn't know I was like, didn't, you know, that I didn't know I was tamping down, right? Just my mornings are clear, all that stuff. I'm playing better. He plays volleyball. But the other thing was, he now seven months in or whatever, he's like, I feel like I'm just telling the truth everywhere for the first time in my life. Mm, that's so beautiful. When you think about the correlation to uh, not anesthetizing the truth and, and I, that, uh, you know, based on your work and who you are, you are a safe container for truth, regardless of what it is, which that yeah. can be it. I mean, for me, that was a transformative experience. Yeah. And I think I'm sure, you know, we do different, somewhat different work, like there's the crossover, but chapter in my book called the truth about lying. And it's the comment that it's the chapter that most people comment on, because it was not what I expected to learn going into sobriety or what I expected to be the biggest revelation for me, life changer for me. And it was learning how to tell the truth. And the reason it was so surprising is because I didn't even realize how much I was lying to myself, to others, mostly to myself for like my whole life, right? Because, and it's just a matter of degrees here and there. You're not listening. You're not able to receive the truth. You're not able to listen. A lot of it came out for me in people pleasing. Mm, Yeah, And you don't realize what that does to you and how it manifests in your life in such extraordinary ways where you're just if you're 1% off center of where, of the truth, but you keep going that way, you're in a different life. Yeah. So you're never, you're never integrated. Right. And mm-hmm. that's how he describes it. And, and even this is someone who would have never qualified as a problem, but he's like, you know, just little things here and there. Like I was able to sort of skim across the top of things that weren't quite right. Like a relationship or a, job situation or a whatever. I had little tiny sort of lies that I told myself and other people about what I was up to. Uh, and I can, he's like, and I just, I don't have to do that anymore, but I, but I also like can't stomach it, you know? So yeah. it's, that to me was fascinating. And, and I'm still six years later into sobriety, just going, wow, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know how much of my relationship dysfunction and my pain was caused from dishonesty 
with myself and other people and how alcohol allowed that. It just allowed me to skim across the top. So in the experience of continuing to sort of invalidate yourself and validate mm-hmm. your own, invalidate your truth, abandon myself, invalidate yeah. myself. And, you know, just to, to sort of anchor this in an example or something, say like I would go on a date and I alcohol and dating for me were like braided together. Like I didn't know how to do one without the other. Damn. And they are for most people. Mm-hmm. And we could talk about, you know, the relationship aspect later and how I see alcohol as this like third party in almost all relationships. Yeah. Not all, a lot. I would say a lot. This is, this is where, you know, alcohol and and dating were so closely interlinked in alcohol and sex. So, and I, I hear this all the time, but for me, it allowed me to bypass so many signals of, that I, I just like, I wanted to rush into the intimacy with this person. Cause I, cause that was my pattern, right? I want to like mesh really quick sober. I wouldn't have been able to do that, but alcohol, you, you have even a couple drinks and the perspective is like, it's like a whole new world and I'm fine sleeping with this person or going further than I wanted to go with this person. And then that completely changes like the trajectory of this relationship. Right. And it establishes this sort of baseline of who I am, what I'm comfortable with, what I'm allowing you into, you know, I don't even know this person or whatever. So alcohol, I look at it as it like allows you to, I was abandoning myself in those situations and I wouldn't have wanted to do that. But because I'd done that from the very beginning of dating and alcohol allowed me to do that, it set the tone for all all of my dating and all my relationships. And I hear so many people do that. Like I needed to feel more comfortable. I needed to feel more flirtatious. I needed to feel sexier. I needed to, you got this thing, this liquid that served everywhere that you can have that's romanticized and you have it one or two drinks, you're off. And of course you're going to do that. Right. Makes so much sense. And because it's so socialized, it's so normalized, as you said at the beginning that you had this rage because you're like, oh, so I'm supposed to look at my shit, but collectively we're not going to do that. And, yeah. you know, I, uh, for me, I was the same after I experienced a heartbreak where I would have normally let connection determine intimacy. Mm-hmm. I now used intimacy to get connection that I could control the depths of. You know, just intimacy. And then if they liked me, I'd run. But I also, the very first time I ever tried to have a one night stand, I got, um, I got performance anxiety. Mm. And because I was out of alignment, I was out of alignment with my integrity and my body. Like, nope. Yeah. My, it was literally connected to my heart, but also figuratively, you know, and I remember then I could learn that I learned that if I drank enough, I could anesthetize my values. Mm. Which, that, which is what you just described Th- what i just described but you had different word, better words for it you well, your values i relate so much to what you're saying because then from a sort of celebratory cohort perspective i can now share stories of sexual experiences that raise my mm-hmm. value where normally i would have stood in my authentic truth to say that's not who i am but now I felt like love burned me so I could control lust, you know? Yeah. So really I had to grieve so much when I got sober, grieve all the times I put myself in situations that were not safe 
uh, emotionally or physically or, you know, all the things. There was so much grief and shame that was important to process. Yeah. And a lot of people don't recognize that at all. I remember I mentioned that I was full of rage. I mean, I was for all of these things come out, yeah. right? But I was so sad too. Just underneath that, I was so incredibly sad. And once I finally said, oh, this is grief. This is an actual grief process. It was like, yeah, of course you've been, you started abandoning yourself by drinking when you were 15. Wow. So yeah, I was sad to let go of that life. All the ideas I had about that life that weren't true. I was uh, that life, meaning a drinking life. Yeah. There are many layers of grief. Absolutely. And, and layers of shame and, you know, and, and that's, that's a self-perpetuating cycle too, because man, it can change your, there's a reason why we drink too. It works for a while, you know, it's very effective. I remember I always use this example because it's so stark. Like I was married and I knew I shouldn't be married to my ex-husband and I didn't, I, I just knew it and I didn't want to be. And it's, more complicated than that, obviously, but that was the bottom line truth. And I would know that and I'd be sober and I would come home and filled with all this angst. And I would have two drinks, two glasses of wine, and I would be talking to him about having more babies and future plans. And yeah. And it was like, and it felt like I was back in love with him again. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, but that's how people's relationships and lives go on like that decade after decade with alcohol involved sometimes totally pursuing paths that they know are not right. But that's what I mean about how powerful it is. We think it's just a couple glasses of wine. It can't change you that much. It does. Changes your whole, like you said at the beginning, I loved that, that you're only off by a degree, but in 20 years, you're actually off by a whole life. Whole life. Man, the truth of that, like I think of someone's listening because I had to face that truth that I was, yeah. you know, in r- relationships, making choices that were not in alignment with who I was. And you really, you know, I remember when I was in a relationship that I knew I didn't innately want to be in and I had mm-hmm. to leave and I chose to. I remember one of those most sort of sobering questions was, you know, could someone else love her better? Mm, wow. and yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I've been so selfishly involved in just my own process that I'm forgetting that I'm taking another person with me because I'm yes. afraid of the truth. Yes, yes, yes. And that, that's a question I, I asked myself too, you know, around that relationship. But yeah, it it is that 1% or that, you know, it, that slight tweak. And I'm not saying that anyone who drinks is in the wrong life, right? But we think it's basically, you know, the psychological or the socio the, the sociological cultural trope is that it makes life better. Mm-hmm. There's no sort of mm, you, we know the dark side if it goes too far, but that that's two glasses I'm talking about. I literally remember yeah. being like, oh okay, so if I just like have a glass of wine or two glasses of wine, I can deal. That seems to be a constant uh, or a very common narrative these days where I've been witness to this conversation about like 
I see this a lot, this sort of celebration of mom life, mm. drinking. And again, as a male, I, re- I don't mean this with any judgment because I certainly, that's been normalized as part of dad life forever, have a beer, get home. Sure. Yeah. So that's already. And they're not even vilified for it. <laughs> right. Like crack a beer, ha- watch the game, like unplug emotionally. Too. Um, right. Yeah, which is uh, not to say that's always true, but it just can be often true. Is a, sure. It's a way of anesthetizing and withdrawing from the truth of our lives, mm-hmm. which if we were to pay attention to are asking us to make choices we're afraid to make because we might experience exile from our society. That's how systems stay alive. That's right. You know, that's right. it's all interconnected. And so I've noticed this too. I read an interesting article on um, this woman who was a mother who said, I realized that the message I was sending to my children is that I need wine to be your mother. And I thought, what an interesting, challenging conversation to sit with. Yes. I got this text today because I, I mean, I've been talking about the mom stuff for years because it just, it's so, it's, it was a huge part of, you know, my excuse to keep drinking, but I, I got this, people send me things all the time and I got, um, this one today, it was a post on Instagram where it was like a, a real motherhood is the, or the mama coach was the, the handle. And she was showing a basket you could give to a new mom and it's four wine bottles. And on the four labels is the first labels, first mommy meltdown. That's when you get to drink that bottle. Then back in your skinny jeans, second bottle, first diaper explosion, third bottle and baby slept through the night, fourth bottle. Wow. A basket of wine bottles. And that's just, it's everywhere, you know? Um, what do you yeah. think has created the cultural momentum of that? Because that seems like, you know, I I have no judgment for anyone who's caught up in whatever that no. is, or, or if they're authentically having a glass of wine. Again, I want to keep emphasizing nope. that it's not a place of judgment. It's actually curiosity to the the cultural momentum of it. Yeah, I think there are multiple factors. I think one big alcohol realized women are a market period and mm. they went after it right and people we can say we're immune to marketing and oh my god no media, we're not Jeez. but like i, I actually a- won't even let no we are not immune to marketing that's why marketing exists <laughs> yeah so i get a lot of i get pushed back when i post about these things because i get it people say it sounds like i'm um, playing a victim or saying women are victims And so I just have to call it out because, you know, they say, I believe in personal responsibility. Well, so do I. And marketing is real. I'm a marketer. Manipulation is real. Manipulation. (laughs) I can sell you something you didn't even know you needed. Look at social dilemma. I can make you feel feelings you didn't want to feel. It works. It works. So because it bleeds into culture and we ingest these messages. And I mean, come on. So I just have to say that. Okay. So there's they figured out big alcohol is a multi-billion dollar industry. It is massive. Mm-hmm. And they figured out women were an industry and they went after it. So you get all the pink drinks and the rosés and the hard seltzers and all of that, right? It's all for women. And me when I drink. <laughs> Didn't mind a rosé sure. all day. But you're but not, yes. yeah, you're, yeah. You're I'm the, not the target. I'm not the yeah, target. you weren't the target, but they're happy to have you. Um So there's that. And then there is this interesting uh, feminist sort of angle to it where I think, you know, women wanted to be like the guys in the workplace and otherwise. And 
men were drinking with sort of impunity. You know, you look at Mad Men, for mm-hmm. example. I don't know if you watched it, but yeah, I did. I worked in advertising, and it's not far off, even in this age, in terms of the amount of alcohol consumed and even the sort of roles of men and women. I mean, women, you know, they, I was a vice president, like there, there are many women that have executive roles and all that now, which wasn't happening on Mad Men, but the drinking aspect is real. And the women didn't drink like the men in that show. And in, but the men did business over drinks. And that was like part of the culture of, you know, you want to be part of this club, you drink. And it's not just advertising that goes for banking and finance and lawyers. I mean, I work with all different people in different careers and alcohol plays a big part. If you want to be in, you drink. It's like learning to play golf. If you want to be in the guys, you're going to learn to play golf. Yeah. Okay, good. Smart move. Well, you also got to learn to drink. And so I think a lot of it came from that and professionally, right? And I think another, which is so ironic because you're really sublimating your role when you drink, you know, you're, you, any sort of feminist message you're trying to send is so sublimated because of what happens to people when they drink and especially what happens to women. And there are different effects. So there's that. And I think it's also, um, you know, as women started to enter the workforce, take on more roles it's not like any other roles went away. And so I know for me, it felt like this is the one, this is my sort of fuck you independence time when I get home. Like it's my little, it's my way. And even if it's not a fuck you, it's a, this is how I hold it all up on the back end is by having my glass of wine. Like I can do the job the big job and come home and take care of my kid and do all the other things that I need to do and handle that emotionally. If I have a couple glasses of wine and I'm being told by my peers and by marketing and, and culture that this is what I deserve. Cause Mm -hmm. that's, you see this basket, it's like your mama, this is how you survive motherhood. Right. And you get, celebrities like Kelly Clarkson and it goes on and on and on the number of celebrities that say like openly say how do you get through having four kids wine you know it's essential you get Hoda and Kathy Lee drinking wine at 10 a.m in the morning on the Today Show for years you get every movie and TV show that shows women or shows especially mothers they have their wine so you just see this reinforcement that this is what we deserve. This is what we get. And this, and, and you add on to the, the fact that it works to actually bring down your anxiety in the moment. You get that dopamine rush and you feel better. It's like the lights come on and you're fine. Get that little bit of remove and you, it's a perfect recipe. Do you think that, because as you were saying that, I was just curious, do you think that anesthetization, that glass of wine is treating the rage that is the traditional gender roles, the suppression of the feminine voice, the, you know, this like, fit in this box, take care of these things. Don't really complain about it. Instead, here's some wine, joke around about complaining, but have that post about it on Instagram. Yep. Because I look at 
why men it, need to anesthetize our emotion. Yeah. We don't have access to it. You know, we have to anesthetize the fact that we abandon our emotional selves from birth, basically. Yep. And, you know, both genders uh, are, are taught self-abandonment in, to- in order to keep the system going. So I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I, I meant by the, the fuck you part. Oh, it's the end. Like, yeah. The, like this is. But like it's fem- it's like I'm choosing this to say fuck you rather than sitting in the fuck you and change yeah. and, all and of it, us participating. And I think oftentimes it's not even a conscious, it's not conscious. Yeah, no, of course not. You know, it's like you would be hard pressed to go to any mom's group anywhere and, and not find a mention of wine as ha ha ha. We, at least we get our wine. How do you survive motherhood? Wine. Yeah. It's an interesting, I, I sort of look at it and I think I, I'm glad you said it. like, it's not conscious of course. Right. Because we don't, know that we've consciously self-abandoned to take on roles in life and jobs and careers that were taught, were heavily marketed to us to take and be and do, which we don't even really know all the, when you start to pay attention to all the unconscious conditioning you've had to self-abandon to like, what's the fastest way to kill a soul? Go do the same job from eight to six every day, you know, like, yeah. We're meant, we're meant to be on land. We're meant to be in community. We're meant to yeah. be pro- create be pro- and use our right. hands and use our souls and brains. And yeah. Right. So I don't think women are sitting there going, you know, I am feeling so repressed by the roles that I've been given, a, you know, and that my feminine nature is being suppressed and I'm like, you know, we're not, they're not sitting there, but it's like, that I think is a major part of it that you're just like, something's got to hold it up on the back end. Right. We've yeah. got this culture that's that's like women wanted it all. That's what we said, right? And and we kind of got it all, but we didn't realize that that's actually an impossible thing to do. Oh, you you <laughs> mean like the career, the mom, the right. all the holding? You up can all. have it all. You can, and it's bullshit. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. You you can't. You're not. None of us can have it all. No one can hold like, up the world like that, right? And and but then it becomes like you see people who are doing that, and every person you see doing that on TV, or sometimes even in real life has a martini, has a glass of wine, is it drinks sophisticated, you know, and it's like, oh, well, that that's what it means. I mean, I I call it fantasy island in my book. I was like, that's what it means to be successful in a relationship, you know, to have the relationship, the the job, the life, the all of it. And alcohol fits into that picture. It's a part of that picture. Yes. And I and you don't see what what's happening behind the scenes. You don't see the hangovers and the anxiety and the shame and the inter because so much of it is internal because everyone's all these women are sitting because I know these women now. They I work with them. They're sitting around they're going, how is everyone else holding this together? It must just be me. I need to try harder. Uh, that same sort of uh there's actually a collective taking on of this rather you know, much like you were saying about I have a problem. The world has a problem. It's like I can't hold this up. How's anyone else holding it up? And you look at it and you go, they're holding it up. Every, they're, how are they doing? I mean, I used to do that. Be like, I just have to try harder. I have to set more rules about how much I drink. Or it's okay that I'm over drinking because ha ha ha, we laugh about it. We support each other in doing it. It's like any, you know, it's it's sort of like any, I'm sure you see this, like any sort of ab- abusive system that the whole family or the whole 
community buys in on. It's like this quiet agreement that you all have that we're all yeah, going to participate enrolled. in this. Yeah. We're all enrolled, but don't and don't bring it up. Like don't no for someone to say I'm kind of worried about my drinking it would be like whoa <laughs> yeah. stop you know we yeah. just you're fine we, you're we fine. need to all be on the same page and you see that happen all the time where one person sort of starts to defect and they are outcast from yeah. their mom groups they're exiled right and and it's that I mean that goes to the core you know that, that we're we fight that at any cost as humans because we don't want to be outcasts. But it's bizarre to me. Alcohol is the one drug you have to explain not using. Like you would right. never, yeah. you would never hear, why are you stopping drinking? Why are you stopping taking, you know, like, you, why are you stop doing You would cocaine? never say, why, why are you, yeah, I can't believe you stopped doing cocaine. Like, oh my God, you're fine. Or I can't believe you stopped smoking. You're fine, you know? So, That's so interesting. I've never thought about that. That's how enrolled we are. And I we're so enrolled. I love what you said about when the system itself, the family system, the cultural system, is designed to ignore the the elephant in the room. Then yeah. when you point and say, Did anyone notice the elephant? Everyone's like, nah, just have some tequila. Like shut we the love up. that elephant. Yeah. If, if right. maybe you'll get like, yeah, I know we're so I mean, the jokes that we I used to have to tell myself and that we'd all used to have to tell ourselves and you kind of know, but you just I mean, I liked drinking. I thought I bought into all the myths about it. It helps me relax and it's what's holding me together. You know, you see these memes like wine is the duct tape of life. Um, that's so, pretty funny. I get it. That's a good meme. As you it's know, a great meme. It's ha ha ha. It's funny. But till yeah. you realize that you're, you know, I was thinking about what you said about as soon as one person ex- gets sober, for example, or says, Hey, what's going on here? What I find and then gets exiled from the group, or at least maybe spoken behind their back or whatever it is. What's really interesting to me in my own personal experience of that was I was really afraid of that because if we're going to speak to the male side of this, I mean, we get together, we have a scotch, we have a beer. And I was like, why can't we catch up on tea? You know, like uh, all my friends were super receptive to my choices and super respected or respectful. And what was interesting, though, is I really feared the exile. But what I recognized by still and this has nothing to do with them, but for me to pick up a drink again it felt like I was exiling myself. Like Mm -hmm. in order to operate in the system with me still being the same, I was actually exiled within the system. So I think the system's together, but it's not because I'm robot. Like, yes, what do you, you know, but I couldn't do that anymore. You can't do it anymore. And, and people either reach that. I can't do that anymore through horrible circumstances that their consequences rather of drinking and they're sort of forced into it. But what I'm seeing more and it makes me so happy is the bar is lower for inquiry. Now, you know, there's sober October, there's January, there's sober curiosity, you know, people, there's a whole sober curious sort of movement where people are even it's like they're getting a socially validated reason to just try not drinking, which fine. I don't care how people try it on. So that is really heartening to me. You know, the, the conversations that are being had that were not being had six years ago when I got sober, like none, none. Yeah. I've noticed that on Instagram that continued 
Like I know there's one account that I follow called Life Unimpaired and I love it. You know, reading, I love reading people's journeys through what they've realized, the truths they've come alive to. And you just taste so much more of life. And that's been really neat to see this momentum. And, And also that within the, it seems like the youth of today also are more interested in sobriety and yeah, there's a brand. Yeah. They're drinking less. And there's this mm-hmm. really cool uh, spirit brand that I saw called soul brew. S O L B R U. And it's like, uh, but like reishi and it's healthy drinks yeah. that are non-alcoholic that are literally like your friends are pouring a scotch. You pour yourself this yeah. actually thing that's improving your health, yeah. which I'm there's like, yeah, there's some great brands out there. Curious elixirs is awesome. There's this, you got to check out this brand called recess. I just discovered them because their marketing is so incredible. Um, so there's, a, there's a lot happening, you know, yeah. that wasn't before when I, when I got sober, it was like the only conversations around sobriety were around 12 steps in the AA and AA. And if you talked outside of that, some, you know, it was very risky. And, um, still is, isn't it? Kind of like I look, I look at the conversation of AA and I went to a meeting with my family member who's, uh, sober, who doesn't go to that anymore. Um, but what was, it doesn't go to AA anymore. Mm -hmm. And when I went, what was interesting in the conversations I had with friends who I discovered had been members or are members is there's so much language, uh, that is to God which is doesn't fit everybody, you know? So I really, because what's the success rate of AA roughly? It's so hard to guess. I've heard anything from 4% to 10%, but who knows? Because most people, you know, it's self-reporting. Right. Who knows? But it's not, it's not super high. And it works for some people, which is great. It works. And I will always have respect for AA. I love, that was my first, sort of base when I went to get sober and those people saved my life, you know, and I still, the 12 steps are beautiful. They're ancient spiritual wisdom that don't really belong to AA. You know, they, they are, if you look at any sort of spiritual text, you can find the 12 steps there in some, some form that's beautiful, but you know, it's run by humans and humans ruin things and change (laughs) things and alter things. And, um, and it hasn't been ruined. That's not what I'm saying, but experience, varies based on where you go and of course they haven't yeah. updated the text since it was developed in the 40s and it's highly male centric and uh, you know so there's some it was no look no one modality exists we, we don't have any other if you buy the disease model which i won't even go into that but there's no one affliction or disease or set of symptoms that we only ascribe, you know, prescribe one modality for there's not, but, but that's been the, the way that it's been for alcohol addiction and really all addiction, really all addiction. Yeah. Um, Follow these 12 things up until recently. So it, it makes sense that there's other, that there are other things coming uh, to the fore and it makes sense that there's pushback for it, you know? Yeah. Anytime we, especially if we're the one who was saved by something, then we are like, but everyone needs to do this one. And I've learned a long time ago that the path to healing is neither linear nor always similar. Uh, yeah. We all have different paths and yep. we're going to find different times our, ourselves in different places at the right time. Yeah. You know, and I think of what's being created and you're like, 
Yes, more opportunity. It just means there's more opportunity. Right. But I, and I also get, I get it. You know, if you have had this, had the experience that I had and many millions of others have had where you've been in the depths of hell, you know, a, a deep spiritual, emotional, physical hell on earth and you come out of it, you're going to attach this thing that you believe fixed you or saved you. You're going to, you don't want to hear that that's maybe not right. <laughs> that or maybe not is, the only way. That is life threatening, yeah. you know, to your, to your psyche in a way, or it can be. And a lot of people can't get out of that. So I get it. I get I, that makes that. a lot of sense that there's like, but you might be threatening other people's lives by not reinforcing that this is the only way. That's right. And yeah. I, I mean, that's what I've been told. You're, you're, you know, you're killing people and you're, <laughs> it's like, it's okay. It's, I, I used to get very scared about that and take it personally and get mad about it. And now it's like, I get it. You think about the number of people who have written you and said, thank you for writing your book. You've changed my life on right. any scale who might, who chose to change before a rock bottom that brings you to AA. That's right. Know, which is right. I think beautiful to say like, Hey, I'm not going to wait till I have to, I'm going to do it because I choose to. Yeah. And that's the other thing, you know, AA is, is really for, uh, uh, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. It is not meeting people before they get to that. <laughs> and it very much says there are people who can drink and people who can't, right? Normies, they're called in AA, the ones who can drink. Um, there's no, they're not a lot of people, like my boyfriend would never have walked into an AA room and been like, yeah, this is the place for me. Yeah, He would have been like, I, I don't need to stop drinking. I This is not. So it, it, there was this massive gray area that need, needed to be addressed and is being addressed now, which I'm really happy about. It's such an exciting area of uh, of possibility because I think of, yeah. you know, the conversation we're having is like, you could just be slightly feeling like maybe there's been an intuitive hit that you maybe should just see what life's like without wine. Yeah. And what was really fascinating for me that I had to sit in the discomfort of because, you know, it's the healing of all your codependencies when you stay in a space of sobriety, which is I have to now worry about what people think and feel about me not drinking. <laughs> yes. And, and that was like, uh, you know, where I previously would have had a drink because someone else was having a drink. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. And I just, want, oh, yeah. So, and instead oh. now I'm like, actually, knowing your discomfort is an answer for you. Mm. You know, I think if someone's listening to this and then go, this conversation is really triggering me or making me uncomfortable or I don't have a problem and there's a defensiveness that I'm like, beautiful, go into it. Just follow that. Just follow that little feeling that might mean you just stop drinking as much or that through the ability of not having that glass of wine, you hear a truth and a voice that you know has always existed. Yes. I mean, I... I wasn't, you know, I, I looked back at my journals because people always say like, when did you know you had a problem with drinking? And, and on some levels, like, oh, you know, maybe in my late twenties, cause that's when it got really bad. But then I looked at my journals and I was talking about alcohol and my worries about it and wanting to sort of stop drinking. I was identifying it as a thing in my 15 year old journals. All the Whoa. Wow. I knew like, I wouldn't say I have a problem, but I would say, I want to drink. I don't want to drink. I want to drink less. I did this because I was drunk, 
right? So it's all there. I knew long before I allowed myself to know that it was, it was my thing. You said something interesting at the beginning um, about sort of using language that makes this accessible maybe, or, you know, not shamey. And one of the things that I really try as part of that sort of rage, like this is a bigger problem that happened to me or sprung up when I got sober, I realized like when I would go to AA meetings, for example, and and I'm just, I'm not, I'm really not trying to pick on AA, but um, I would hear people say, well, I do that because I'm an alcoholic. I, I have these issues. I have impulse control issues because I'm alcoholic or codependent. They wouldn't call it codependent. The behavior they were describing was codependent, but all of their sort of, they call them character defects and alcohol were, were explained by alcoholism. And I would just sit there and go, no, these are human things. These are human things. No doubt, I have a thing with alcohol that a lot of people don't. I was never able to stop. There was never amount that was enough. You know, not everyone has that, whatever it is. But the stuff underneath, that was all human stuff. And it still is human stuff. And addiction is not unique. It's not like, that's what I try to tell people. It's, it's not even that interesting. It's like addiction is written into every historical, anthropological, psychological record from the beginning of time. We are addicted as species. It's what the Buddhists talk about, right? It's in, it's, it's not that there are some people who are addicts and some people aren't, it's some people take it, you know, go further down the line with one thing or the other. But I think there's an over identification with addict or alcoholic that limits people from exploring what it might be like to be sober. Cause I hear that all the time. Like if I'm, if I have to be sober, I want to be sober. Does that mean I need to call myself an alcoholic? It's like, hell no, you are a human being. That's it. And you have a proclivity to want to change your state. We all do. Mm. And you have intelligent mechanisms within you that seek to do that. That, that, that look, the reasons I started lying, I mentioned lying at the beginning were very intelligent reasons. I learned to lie as a kid to, to, to survive my environment, my home environment. I learned to make things okay, right? I'm going to tell you I'm fine because I can't tell you how I really am. That initial sort of leaving ourselves, that abandonment of ourselves that comes in all kinds of forms requires anesthetization, anesthetization requires numbing. It requires that. And we find it in one way or another. We find it in food. We find it in alcohol. We find it in relationships. We, we find it in all the things. There's not one person that doesn't have to go through the work of what happens when you get sober, which you're talking about, you know, like I had to look at some truths. Yeah, we all have to do that. Whether your entry point is because you stop drinking, your entry point is because you go to whatever it is, some, you know, we all have this invitation, but you do not have to call yourself an addict or an alcoholic because you want to not t- ingest a substance that you think might just be limiting who you could be, right? So that is one of the things that I see as um, one of the big disservices that we've done as a society and a culture when it comes to addiction and what it means to be sober. Yeah. Like if you're choosing to be sober, then 
you almost at the same time take on an identity or are adopting must adopt this. Like you're only not drinking because you've got a problem drinking as opposed to uh, you just want to explore what I like how you said uh, affect our state, like to explore mm. what is it like to be fully because I think about what is it like to be fully embodied and within my fullest, most attuned, intuitive self yeah. in every moment. Yeah. Like, and oh, and you, okay. So, but for me at a certain point and for many people that might be listening, like that is too much. They yeah. could not do that today. Their trauma wouldn't allow it. Mm-hmm. Right. Psychologically they can't. And so of course we drink, of course we do these things. The lie is that alcohol is this banal substance that doesn't have any negative side effects unless you're using it too much, you know, and that's a lie. That is the lie. Right. And mm. that's what I really want people to see is it's not, it's not banal. It's not, it, it, it there is no safe amount of drinking, you know, by the way, there's zero is the safe amount of drinking. We don't see those studies, even though there's one big one that came out in two seven, 2017, because no, they're, they, big alcohol suppresses those. And, I, and again, I'm not saying like we should, I'm not a prohibitionist, but of course we drink. Of course you drink. I have, that's why I don't, of course, like when people tell me I, I drank again, I'm like, of course you did. You know, that's just what happens. I still have addictive behaviors, but you chip away one by one. You weren't ready to not drink or it didn't occur to you to take that leap or you weren't, you know, whatever your reasons were until you were. I'm sure you mm. knew maybe for a long time and you had to do the work, some work that you had to do before then to be able to make that particular step. And I'm sure there were many steps like that along the way. Yeah, it took the, oh, I mean, many, when I look back and you said your 15 year old self was journaling, I remember being in my early 20s after like waking up, you know, after blacking out and just being like, I can't like this isn't 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 good. This I can't forget things. You know, how did I get home? How did I you know, where's my wallet? Where's my phone or whatever? Right. And I remember being at this conference where there was a conversation happening of of like really just, you know, asking questions, similar questions, like, what do you know is true that you need to change? Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, like, the one thing I value in life most is connection. And the one thing I anesthetize myself from is connection. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wild? It was so fucked to think to yeah. like, to, to, and you know, even actually, that was actually the first moment that I felt a shift in my body Mm. from actually not wanting to have a drink where before I would party to disconnect from myself, you know, all the things. Yes. Oh, and that was like you were reaching, like you got that sort of hit. Of... It, was, it was the turning around the first yeah. time. Yeah. It was about f- f- five years before I stopped. Mm-hmm. It was my, it was that one line combined with my partner saying to me, Hey, I noticed sometimes when you drink, like your energetic changes, like, you don't do anything wrong, but you're like, there's something in your energy. And yeah. And I didn't like that truth, which I knew that there was a truth there because I didn't like what you she didn't said. didn't like it. Right. And it made me, you know, my mom is Irish. And so she would always say like, you can't have any spirits. And I remember going into sort of that, the thought of like, there is almost like a, a spiritual a spirit within us that comes out that 
is not really out for our best. It's not out for our best interest. It's not, and we have to be able to sit those parts of ourselves down and get to know them, so that yeah. they, so that we don't need an al- alcohol to give them birth to them. You know, that's right. That's oh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah, there's um, there's, yeah. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't even add to that. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't have to be that you know, your life is falling apart, that it's that back to that 20% that a lot of people would never know about themselves. If, and it doesn't have to be alcohol. It's like, whatever your thing is, that's what I talk about in the book. Like we all have a thing, you know, many things, but we all have kind of the, the thing that we are hiding from ourselves. And mm-hmm. I don't know why alcohol is my thing. I don't even care anymore. You know, I thought it was the worst possible fate. But man, if I would have missed the life that's on the other side of that, I can't, I can't believe I thought I was losing out by, by having to stop, you know? So true. Like I now sit at a, well, when you could sit at a concert with friends or uh, sit around a table or at a beach, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and people are having drinks and I'm so happy that I'm, I'm, I'm actually eating up so much more of the moment now. I miss things like having a scotch with buddies, yeah. things like that. Yeah. But that's where I now pour one of my little soul brews or, you know, something like that where I'm still engaged. I, because I like the actual taste of what I'm drinking, I could drink anything. But there's yeah. something about the sort of ritual that I appreciate. It's the ritual. Right. Yeah. Right. And I'm still part of it, which is really cool. But then I can drive everyone home. I can... You know, and you don't, there's no messes. There's no, there's no, I remember like the first time I went to a concert because concerts were big for me, are big for me. And I went to a concert for the first time and I realized like, there's not one single second of the night that's gone. Mm. Mm. I'm not missing anything. So beautiful to think like, you don't need to film it all on your phone because you're it's here. It's in your mind. Yeah. Your it's, and, and, and to have your life be like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm a parent and that, that has been, that gift exceeds all the other gifts just to know that, yeah, there's days I'm a shitty parent. I get, I lose my temper. I, whatever, but it's all, it's not because of alcohol, you know, it's honest, yeah. just humanness. I'm not missing a single thing with her. Yeah, I've noticed for myself, what's been really interesting is being able to sit with all the parts of myself and the truths, you know, like putting myself in situations that weren't okay, et cetera, et cetera, that my ability to repair and to apologize and to take responsibility, it wasn't really there before because, you know, I remember uh, listening to a really great podcast episode from Brene Brown with Harriet Mm -hmm. Lerner and Mm -hmm. in it, they asked Harriet Lerner why can some people just not apologize? And she said, because to apologize, I love the way she speaks to you, to apologize requires the ability to stand on a solid foundation of worth. And I realized that there was so many, um, how could I ever feel like enough if I put myself in situations that said I wasn't worthy, you know, like by my own design? Yes. Wow, that's powerful. Because I know... I, that's really powerful. I had so many things to apologize for genuine things, not things that I just said were my fault that really weren't or whatever. Cause there are plenty of that, but things like I really wronged a lot of people and harmed a lot of people 
with my drinking and otherwise. And I couldn't say sorry because it was too painful for me. Mm. Mm. You know, it ironically makes you this, this, when you are pain, which comes from this, you know, honest place. And for a lot of reasons that aren't necessarily our fault, um, makes us selfish. Mm. You know, that's one of those unfortunate, really mm. unfortunate. That's so interesting to think your own hurt uh, causes you to isolate, causes you to, f- uh, yeah, that's so interesting. It makes you selfish. It does to not want to have to experience it again. And experience your own self-hatred, right? Mm. It's like giving it to someone else and saying here, this is how I feel about myself, right? Mm. It's too painful. You just can't. Um, but what that real, the reality of that in your relationships is really selfishness. It's I was an extraordinarily selfish person. Um, and I will say it's, that's not the case anymore, right? Like I can mess up, but, but I love how you said that your capacity for repair is there and it's there for me too. Well, and then, you know, you said, uh, maybe it's that 20% that we don't have access to, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. And you think of your relationship, if you can repair is going to get at least 20% better. You're, oh. Your your life, you know, to be. I can't because, even. Yeah. Well, you're to, always beyond, right? You're always beyond where you never could make it past because. Yes. Now there's this human version of you that says because I think even the act of apologizing when you don't have the worth yet is worth creating, right? So you yeah. you do the thing and then you realize it's connective. It, you feel um, you feel like you've uh, released a demon, so to speak, you know, in yeah. some ways. Yeah. And, and you realize you don't have to hold it. And, and actually what connects all of us as people is our imperfection or yeah. the things we don't do well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But if you have, if you have so much, so many demons inside of you, if you, if you, you know, I, I really thought mm-hmm. I was, because I, in my marriage, for example, I was unfaithful. I, I lied about things that, and I, like when I say I caused real damage, I really did. And mm-hmm. I thought I will die with these things inside of me. I will never tell the truth because if I do, it just equals death, like period. And I thought that I, I just thought that I would, I thought that I could, but you can't like that causes such extraordinary pain and friction in you. Mm-hmm. And it it did not occur to me that the path to love was through honesty, right? It it I didn't mm. believe that. And one of the things I say in the book, and one of the biggest things that I've realized is that the truth is uncomfortable. So is lying. They're both really uncomfortable, right? But the truth is expansive and lying. You, okay. Lying is destructive there's no place to grow right you you mm-hmm. get things get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. and it uh and lying is expansive it's uncomfortable but expansive Wait, sorry the truth is expansive. the truth okay lying is uncomfortable but destructive right yeah the truth is uncomfortable but expansive mm, that's and beautiful you know the difference when you feel it right? It feels different. Like I could, I, I could lie. I was mortified at how easily I could lie. 
and we think we get away with it. We don't get away with anything psychologically. Like we right, know that, right? right. There's a cost. We don't, get, we don't get away with anything. And the way out was to start learning to tell the truth. And man, that was that is and was some of the hardest work I've ever had to do. It is horrifying. It's terrifying. But you do it piece by piece, you know. And it, it was a learning process for me. And I can say, like, that is the difference. I don't have to anesthetize anymore because I have an honest life. I have nothing to hide. Amen. That, you know, that saying the truth still sh- set you free is, is really, I remember hearing Carolyn Mace in, oh, yeah, 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 she's fire. She's fire. I remember I hearing her, her say, uh, if there's one thing I've learned in my, I think she's been doing it for 50 years or 40 years in yeah. my, however many years of healing work, it's that liars don't heal. And I thought to myself, like, gosh, to go from a life that's built upon just small fibs to a, a life that is free. I, this is who I am. Cause that's such a lie we tell, right? It's like, I'm going to yeah. pretend to be, I'm good with everything. I'm nothing bothers me, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. But it, it's not the truth. You know, like what happens right. if you just told us all who you actually are and what you're mad about, what you're done doing, what you need, Right. No, it's so freeing. Well, that's the that's the point I make in, in the book. It's like it's not it's not the outright deceit. Like we we know when we're sort of outright deceiving. That's not even really what I'm talking about. Although that's in there, that uh, that is a lot part of lying. But but the the pernicious part, the the part that is like death by a thousand cuts, is the more socially acceptable forms of dishonesty, which is like people pleasing, just mm-hmm. right there. To, to understand that when you are people pleasing, you are lying mm. and you are setting a false foundation for your relationship. And to most people that enter sobriety, I would, especially women, I would say they people please everyone. So no. all their relationships are dishonest. It's a, it's a hard thing to look at. That's an important truth, you know, and I, I mean, you've been laying down the fire, so thank you for preaching. Thank you. Yeah. And it's I think so when we to talk to you, same. And, it, you know, I think about when you can sit towards that truth that like that people pleasing is a, a lie, that it is you setting up relationships on conditions that are actually not true for you. And I, and they will never be true. And right. you will, you will, they will never be true. You will resent that person. And it comes out, I mean, God, if I could just like, <laughs> one, <laughs> one, I mean, this, this has nothing to do with drinking either. It, it, well, it does because drinking allows it, right? It allows you to-, to Treats it, it, yeah. Yeah, and it treats it, yeah. But man, one prescription for people, it's like, just get curious about that. You know, that when I, when I realized that, and it was through some really deep work, when I had like all my troubled relationships laid out on paper, my relationship history, these are all kinds of relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, work, whatever, that the core through line in all of them was that I was dishonest. It was Mm -hmm. like, what? (laughs) You're like this. Holy shit. I didn't realize. Cause I always thought I, I was the one trying so hard. I was giving so much. I was, you know, I thought it was just people pleasing. It's not, it's not a small thing. 
No, it's big. It's that it's four degrees, you know, and those that's more than that. And then you end up in this life you don't love that you designed yourself from a compassionate space, though, is that you learn to do that. And, you know, that's that's right. You're right. And well, I know one prescription everyone needs, which is to go buy your book. <laughs> yeah. And, yes, and go buy my book. Seriously, go buy this woman's book. You're as eloquent of a speaker as you are a writer. And I'm just so appreciative of your truths and just that you, I mean, you don't leave anything on the table and that uh, I know for the people listening is appreciated because I mean, that's why they're here. We, we're that's not here to fuck around, right? Like, right. let's change our lives. And, and so where do people find more of you? Uh, Instagram is my favorite social place. So I'm on Instagram is Laura underscore McCowan. And then my website is my name. Perfect.com. So that's, that's where I am. And my book is, you can buy my book anywhere. We are the luckiest. We are the luckiest. Yeah. We'll have yep. to have more conversations in the future. I'll, I'll, uh, I've got a podcast coming, another podcast coming on my side. So I'm going to have you. Oh, on. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. 